I think what we need to do is explain how our principles of free speech, free inquiry, will help serve the cause of justice. The First Amendment, the constitutional freedom of speech and freedom of conscience that is the bulwark of our democracy. There was a passion in what was being said, affirming this, this what people consider a sacred constitutional right, freedom of speech and freedom of association. From the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, this is Speech Matters, a podcast about expression, engagement, and democratic learning in higher education. I'm Michelle Deutschman, the Center's Executive Director and your host. Back in 2017, when Milo Yiannopoulos visited UC Berkeley, violent protests erupted, resulting in a canceled event, injuries, $100,000 worth of property damage, and $200,000 spent on event security. In the aftermath, the center was created in order to respond to this renewed wave of activism, controversy, and backlash about free expression on college campuses. Five years later, and with college life fully back in person following the pandemic, we've seen another series of heckler's vetoes at universities across the country, including at Stanford Law, Yale Law, UC Davis, and Penn State. Looking ahead to an election year, I anticipate that there may be more of these incidents, which is why we've invited two guests to join us today to share their experiences preparing for and responding to polarizing figures coming to speak on campus. But first, let's turn to class notes, a look at what's making headlines. The Supreme Court continues to announce cases that will be heard in the next term, including matters that raise questions about the First Amendment, public officials, and the rights of social media users. In O'Connor, Ratcliffe versus Gagné, two school board members in San Diego County established Facebook and Twitter accounts separate from their personal accounts in order to discuss and promote school-related content. Christopher and Kimberly Gagné, a couple with children in the district, often posted long, critical, and repetitive posts on the trustees and board of trustees pages. Initially, school board members deleted or hid their posts, but then later blocked them entirely. Last summer, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a district court decision finding that the school board members infringed on the First Amendment rights of the Gagnés by blocking them because the accounts were used to carry out the board members' official duties. Stay tuned for more on this issue. With last week's passage of HB 2789, the state of Illinois became the first state to ban the banning of books. Per the bill, funding will be withheld from public or school libraries that remove books from circulation. Illinois Secretary of State, who authored the bill, said, All of these efforts to curb reading materials have absolutely nothing to do with books. They are about restricting the freedom of ideas that certain individuals disagree with and that certain individuals think others should have access to. Following the growing trend of removing slave owners' names from buildings, Trinity College in Dublin has decided to remove Irish philosopher George Berkeley's name from their library over his ownership of enslaved people. George Berkeley is also the namesake of UC Berkeley, though the university has no plans to rename the school. A university spokesman said, We acknowledge that the university's founders chose to name their new town and campus after an individual whose views warrant no honor or commemoration. But a century and a half later, he said, Berkeley has come to embody and represent very different values and perspectives. 
Now back to today's guests. Danny Shehe currently serves as the Assistant Vice President for Student Affairs at Penn State, supervising offices focused on students' rights and responsibilities. He also co-chairs the university's behavioral threat management team. Prior to these appointments, Danny served as the Senior Director of the Office of Student Conduct for seven years. In that role, he oversaw the administration of the university's conduct process at Penn State's primary campus in University Park, Philadelphia, as well as its 23 additional campuses across the Commonwealth and online, with a total enrollment of 99,000 students. Prior to joining Penn State, Danny worked in different capacities at The Ohio State University, Texas A&M University, and the College of William and Mary. I am proud to share that Danny is a current fellow at the center. He is completing his year-long project, University's Response to Offensive and Bias-Related Speech, which focuses on examining how student affairs practitioners respond to offensive speech and generally how universities engage their campus communities in dialogue and restorative justice in response to these incidents. Radhika Gaude is a graduating third year at UC Davis studying political science with an emphasis in public service and a minor in environmental policy analysis and planning. She intends to attend law school where she hopes to study constitutional law after completing a legislative fellowship in D.C. Her undergraduate research centers around the intersection between environmental and constitutional law and campaign finance laws as it relates to the First Amendment. She currently serves at UC Davis's Associate Students Student Body President, where she represents over 30,000 undergraduate students. In this role, along with advocating on behalf of students, she oversees a $19 million budget and over 3,000 student employees, including the largest student-run restaurant in the country and the primary public transit system for the city of Davis. I am thrilled to have both of you on the show. Welcome to Speech Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Really glad to be here. Let's get started with a little recap of some of the things that have happened at your respective campuses over the course of this academic year. Each of you has had to dealt with difficult situations related to speakers invited to campus by registered student groups. In the case of Penn State, this past fall, a student group, Uncensored America, invited Gavin McGinnis, the founder of the white nationalist organization The Proud Boys, and Alex Stein, known provocateur, to campus to speak. 45 minutes before the event, Stein walked out into the crowd of protesters, smiling and egging on students. Violence erupted and students were pushed and pepper sprayed as protesters, counter-protesters, and the police clashed. Within an hour, the university decided to cancel the event. Following that decision, the university president said, quote, Tonight, the message too many people will walk away with is that one can manipulate people to generate free publicity or that one can restrict speech by escalating protest to violence. These are not ideas that we can endorse as an institution of higher education. Also this past fall, it's a busy fall, the registered student group at UC Davis, Turning Point USA, invited Stephen Davis, also known as MAGA Hulk, to speak on campus. In response, students and other community members protested outside before the event, prompting counter-protesters wearing Proud Boy t-shirts to show up. The protest evolved into violence. Some students were punched and pepper sprayed, and some protesters used barricades in an attempt to break down the entrance to the event. In response to the violence, the university canceled the event. 
I imagine, and you should both correct me if I'm wrong, that at both UC Davis and at Penn State, there were members of the community who strongly believed that Stephen Davis and Gavin McGinnis and Alex Stein and their respective ideologies did not have a place on campus. As you both well know, once a public university opens up a forum, a quad, or an auditorium, for instance, for speech, it cannot allow or deny entry to that space based on the content or viewpoint of the expression. Explaining that is one piece of the equation. My experience is that it's much harder to articulate the value of allowing unpopular or offensive speech on campus, especially when the speech may contradict other core institutional values. So Danny, we'll start with you. I'm hoping you can share some of your experiences having to kind of explain this dilemma or balancing or tension to students and peers and colleagues and how you did it in a way that you hoped would be effective. Great, thank you so much for the question. And again, thank you for having me on this today. This is an area of interest uh, that's near and dear to my heart because we are having to navigate these um, dynamics so often, and you're absolutely correct. It's a very difficult path to navigate, both recognizing that someone's speech, beliefs, and views are incredibly offensive to much of the community, while also extolling the virtue and value of free speech, especially on a college campus, is a difficult dynamic, right? As you shared, at Penn State, it was a student group, Uncensored America, who sponsored the speakers, Gavin McInnes, the founder of the Proud Boys, although he's you know then since disavowed them, uh, and Alex Stein, a well-known provocateur. To your question, though, we, we pursued a number of strategies when we be, became aware of the event. The event you know, originally was scheduled for October 4th, and that's when it was supposed to have happened. So when we became aware early in the semester, we, we did a number of things. I, we've, we've also learned a lot of things that I would like to share later. But you know, one, first, we created and disseminated community statements from our university leadership. Those primarily came from our Vice President for Student Affairs, our General Counsel's Office, and our Vice Provost for Educational Equity, and really communicated that we found the views expressed by the speakers abhorrent, but we also supported uh, free speech and the First Amendment. Two, we equipped all the offices across campus that we could think of that would be um, that people would inquire or, or, or write to or communicate with about the speakers coming. And we equipped all of them with standard responses and communication to help with that across the university. And then really importantly, we responded to groups who expressed concern or who may have been most impacted by the, the content of the speech. That ranged from student organizations uh, to academic departments, specific academic departments or units, to even community groups, local community groups, um, who both expressed outrage or that we felt may be impacted the most uh, by the content of the, the dialogue. And we offered to meet, to engage in dialogue with them, to explain the university you know, process and decision and, and our processes in trying to allow the event to, to take place, but take place safely. Some took us up on those invitations, um, some did not. Uh, and that was a difficult piece for us. You know, There wasn't an interest by many who were expressing the most serious concerns or the most vocal concerns to engage in a dialogue or in a conversation with us. Uh, their position, their stated position was basically that the university should not provide a platform for such hateful or offensive speech or speakers. And there was no openness to any alternative view or even having the conversation. And I can see how that would be a challenge. So it sounds like one of the things that you did was not just wait to react, but there was proactive. And I'm gonna ask you this question, Danny, before um, I turn to Radhika. 
Did you share your personal views at all about the guests that were coming? Um, I think it's really hard sometimes, or I imagine it's really hard as a student affairs professional to feel like you have to defend the rights of people who you may not actually agree with what they're saying. And I'm wondering if you feel like it's your responsibility to be neutral or um, if there's a way for you as an individual along with the university to say, hey, I think these ideas are abhorrent. Yes, there are times when I did. I, I most often tried to speak on behalf of the university because I also didn't want to get on the slope of being asked my opinion for every speaker coming in. And, and I feel like, you know, when you start sharing your personal opinion about one speaker, then that will be a question that's asked for future speakers. So there were times, sure, when I had conversations with folks that I would say, I absolutely find this abhorrent, but most often I tried to stick with the, the, the feeling or the opinion of the university that the values expressed or the, the you know, the, content of the dialogue expressed by these speakers is contrary to the values of the university and what we want, you know, all of our community members to, uh, to adhere to. Uh, however, for these reasons, they're still being allowed to, you know, to come to campus. And now I want to turn to Radhika for kind of this, you know, the student body president perspective in terms of how was it to talk to people about these tensions? What was effective? What wasn't effective? Um, I think I would echo Danny, first of all, to say that proactive engagement with the student body is probably the most important piece. Um, the, the most common question I got asked by students was, why couldn't I or why couldn't the campus stop the speakers from coming to campus? Um, because we knew beforehand that their speech would uh, take on a harmful nature to a lot of our campus communities. And I, I was also taking um, a First Amendment freedom of speech class at the time. So it was kind of interesting to see how the parallels of both happening in real life to me um, in a leadership position, but also learning about it in an educational context kind of played out because the week before we'd been learning about hate speech and I, I got to see how students reacted to theoretical hate speech and how our, the laws in our country um, are such that hate speech is oftentimes protected and students didn't take very favorably to that. Um, but because that happened the week before, I, I got to see that students tend to respond much better um, to the, the idea that regulating negative or offensive speech only really harms minorities if, if we start prohibiting certain types of speech we find distasteful. That's, that's a tool that can be leveraged against communities that, you know, are, are typically minorities or um, have been underrepresented. So I, I found a helpful tool um, to communicate to students that, you know, imagine that this is your student organization instead who wants to bring a speaker. It wouldn't be good if the campus, you know, decided to unilaterally prevent you from bringing a speaker. So that that I found to be particularly helpful, as well as I wrote a statement beforehand, um, before the speaker came to campus, providing resources to students um, on how to protest safely and, and to exercise their free speech rights in response to the speaker, but also to offer resources for students who we knew would probably be most impacted by the negative speech um, that we expected to hear. So counseling resources, confidential, um, and also non-confidential speakers uh, as well that they could reach out to, um, as well as like community orgs that provided different perspectives than those that we knew would be espoused by the speakers. That's terrific. And if you're both willing, I think we maybe can add some of those um, pre-event statements um, and resources that went out to the episode notes so people can see examples of both sort of the before and I'm imagining we're going to get to the after part. Um, 
you know, as someone who spends a lot of um, my time trying to help uh, students, faculty, and staff understand what you said, which is that, like, somebody who wants to censor somebody else's speech today is going to want to censor your speech tomorrow. Um, I'm curious, it sounds like people, did they... I don't want to say were they persuaded, because I think you can understand that perspective and still feel like the campus shouldn't give a platform. And I'm wondering, did you find that people, A, understood it, and then two, did they did they sort of buy it? Did they buy that underlying you know, concept for the First Amendment? I think it was more helpful to students than the traditional method of communicating why campuses have a legal obligation to allow certain types of speakers. Um, We saw this after the first incident where campus released a statement uh, leading with their legal obligations to allow the speakers to come um, and forgetting a little bit to talk about, yes, we have a legal obligation, but it doesn't align with our values necessarily. That I found was the typical approach, which students generally are not very appreciative of. They find um, whether this be the case or not be the case, um, they find such a statement to be an implicit support of the values held by the speaker or a, a school's endorsement of that speaker, which is not what the campus is trying to say, but it's how students interpret that. But leading instead with um, the, the value of negative speech, why it's important to not prohibit this type of speech, and also saying that the values of our institution and organization are not compatible with this type of speech. However, we do have this legal obligation to allow it to happen. Phrasing statements in that sort of manner um, allows students to be more open to the idea of the legal and ethical and moral obligations of allowing negative speech um, because you don't close them off immediately by hearing, we have to let this happen. There's nothing we can do, it's out of our hands. Students tend to be more closed off um, when when it's framed that way. So I, I don't know if it necessarily convinced everyone. I think there are definitely folks that were still incredibly upset with me um, for putting out what they saw as more of a neutral and less aggressive statement than they would have liked to see in response to the situation. But I do think a lot more students were swayed by the communications ASBCD was putting out in preparation for the first incident than by the communications campus was putting out. And if I, if I could add, I, I absolutely agree. I think our university and other universities I've seen have fallen into the pitfall of saying, if not for that pesky First Amendment, we could prevent them when really it's that, that's not what we're about as institutions. We need to be sharing the value of the First Amendment, whose speech it actually does pr- protect, exactly what Radhika was saying at the beginning, and then also say, and we can simultaneously say these views expressed by the speakers are abhorrent and are contrary to our values. However, the First Amendment has value and we do believe in the First Amendment and we will protect free speech on this campus. So I think I think um, universities have, again, fallen into that trap of, you know, uh, leading with the law. The law prevents us from doing anything when that may be true, but how you couch that is incredibly important. Well, you're both singing my song because um, when I do workshops and trainings, I I generally say that leading with the law is going to fall um, as, as as seeming tone deaf. Um, and, you know, what you're talking about is a different framing. But I also think both of you have made an additional point, right, which isn't just it's a statement and that's it. It's a statement with other things that are happening on campus in terms of providing resources. And, you know, I'd be interested in exploring with each of you a little bit about um 
you know, whether you want to call it counter programming or counter protests. Um, I know that um, certainly at Davis, there was some programming that was happening at a different place at the same time. I don't know if that happened also at Penn State, but um, how hard or easy was it to sort of facilitate that? And I guess I would ask each of you in your roles as an administrator and as a student leader, how involved were you in sort of suggesting and pushing for those things? You know, it's interesting. We've seen, we've seen an evolution in that. Um, a couple of years ago, I don't remember the year now, but Milo Yiannopoulos came, was invited by Uncertainty America, um, similar sort of community response to what happened in October. And several student organizations created a counter event uh, during the Milo Yiannopoulos speech. It was called Love is Louder. It was held in our student union. It was terrific. The entire union was filled with students, community members, lots of you know just diversity and university support, faculty, staff, students, while Milianopolis had fewer than 100 people, right, in, in the classroom that he was speaking in. Uh, so that was a really terrific event. Then when, um, and I, I guess that was maybe prior to COVID. Um, so then when we had uh, the Gavin McInnes and Alex Stein event in October, that idea was proposed again. And, and again, that was a student-led event. The Love is Ladder was student-led. We proposed that idea again to students. What was interesting this time, some students were very interested in that, but some students who really wanted, and students, community members, I should say, who really wanted to protest the event, actually ended up publicly shaming those organizations who wanted to have an alternative event, saying, no, you you are complicit then with the university in allowing this event to happen, and you should not have an alternative event, you should join us. So that was an interesting dynamic, and again, and those protests, the, the primary protest, protesting group was one of the groups that would not meet with us or converse with the university and, and wouldn't identify themselves and were always masked and hooded in any sort of other events they had. So that was, was a very difficult dynamic because we did have some students who represented some of our minoritized and marginalized populations wanting to have this alternative event. And they ended up having a much smaller event, but they actually felt even unsafe having it because of those other folks who were protesting the event. So, so then, then I'll just say um, the, the Uncensored America, the event was canceled, like you mentioned, because of violence in October. Um, and then, but the Uncensored America wanted to have Alex Stein return in April. So just this, just a couple of weeks ago. So we, we've been preparing for that all semester. It didn't happen for logistical reasons, but there was no interest in having an alternative event among any groups because of really what happened in October. Interesting. Um, Radhika, did you see something similar or different at Davis? I know you had two opportunities at Davis, both in the fall and in the spring, um, to think about this um, kind of polarizing figures coming to campus. Absolutely. I think the first time um, we definitely heard from students that counter-protesting was um, the, the way they wanted to exercise their sort of free speech rights and their opposition to the type of speech um, that the speakers were going to be um, expressing. But we found that to be largely ineffective after students got pepper sprayed at that event by um, pro other counter protesters, I want to say, who were identified as Proud Boys by the apparel they were wearing. Um, and I think the students also ended up getting punched and beaten a little bit. So I was more hesitant the second time around to broadly publicize from the ASUCD side 
that, you know, protesting was um, a safe avenue for students to pursue because I, I knew the second speaker was much larger, um, more well-known, and there seemed to be interest from community members, not only within Davis, but also Sacramento and beyond to come to the speech. And um, I didn't feel like in good faith that I could endanger student safety by promoting that. So we were we began to explore counter-programming um, and we quickly ran into the same sort of issue where students thought that counter-programming would substantively like detract from their protesting and um, would kind of um, be seen as ASUC undermining their right to protest or their message. But we knew we still wanted to host a, a safe space for students. So we ended up um, holding a study session in the Coho, our uh, student government restaurant. Uh, it was midterms week, so we marketed it as a midterm study session with snacks. And um, I think we did free coffee. It, it wasn't marketed in conjunction to the speaker's event. It just happened to be at the same time um, on a different place on campus, because there's also a very credible fear that if folks um, supportive of the speaker heard about this event, um, and perceived it as being a, a counter event, they might come to that venue and possibly um, be aggressive towards students. After the first protest, we we had some employees at our coffee house who were being harassed by supporters of the Turning Point student group. Um, and we just didn't want that to happen again. So I think that's the way we balanced our obligation to student safety while ensuring that there's a, another safe space for students to go to beyond protesting. I really appreciate your sh sharing these experiences. And I didn't expect for you both to say um, sort of something similar about this trend, both of, and it makes me very sad, this idea of like, we're united against the ideology, but we're going to turn on each other in terms of the way that we're going to use our voices or choose not to use our voices. To me, that's... Um, you know, very, very sad. Um, and then also even this idea that when you are creating a counter program, that potentially you open yourself up to be targeted. Um, when we were at, at Davis, um, there was a town hall that was something else that the university did in the spring. I remember a couple of students talking about how they were considering, and correct me if I'm wrong, Radhika, that uh, some kind of counter programming event at the LGBTQ center, but then them feeling like especially since the speaker coming was interested in targeting people in the trans community, that maybe that wouldn't be safe. Um, and how that's also hard that we even have to think about the safety of people who want to do something away in time and place from the actual speaker. And, and that sort of leads me to, you know, both of your, both of the incidents in the fall resulted in some kind of violence and also in certain cases in property damage. And so it leads to the question about the role of law enforcement. And I, I want to, I'm going to put out there my experience, and I'm someone who's done a lot of training of law enforcement, is that certainly since the summer of 2020 and George Floyd's murder and the death of many other Black individuals, the role of campus law enforcement and the decisions about when and how to use them has become even more fraught. And so I'm curious if each of you can maybe talk a little bit about the process and how it was determined, you know, how visible law enforcement should be. Um, should they be in plain clothes? Should they be out? Should they sort of be behind the scenes until, you know, hopefully nothing happens? Um, and I'll go ahead and start with you, Radhika. I think in the fall, um, we were very hesitant about having a 
visible, sizable police presence. Um, our, our campus is um, generally skeptical of having police and security at events. We rely uh, pretty heavily on Aggie Host, which is our student sort of security um, employees when possible for all of our events and, and rarely have a police or even security presence. But for the event, um, I believe we ended up going with having um, a private security firm, have a, a couple of individuals there and um, the police were at a separate site, but monitoring the situation in the event, things got violent, um, which they did, but the police didn't end up inter- intervening because um, things just diffused after um, a, a peak of the violence. Um, the second time around, however, learning from a lot of the pepper spraying and the, the violence against students, um, I think campus was a bit more apprehensive, especially since we were anticipating a sizable number of community members to come to the event on our campus. Um, And it was held at the pavilion instead. So instead of being in a smaller center, it was in the pavilion, which um, is a bit easier to secure as as a venue. Um, And this time, there was a visible, sizable police presence and um, security presence, I want to say, in, in riot gear, which was pretty shocking to students. Um, And there were a couple altercations between protesters and policing groups, but it it did contribute in the end to the impression of the institution protecting the speakers um, instead of preventing violence, which was unfortunate. Um, But because of various factors, it didn't blow up as significantly into an issue as we'd expected it would. And at the end of the day, I think the most upset people during the second incident were the folks who couldn't go to the gym because the gym had to be shut down after the connecting door between the pavilion and the gym got broken down by protesters. So um, all, all ended well, but I, I think there was a strong concern that a security and police presence would um, alienate students even further. And if I could just say ditto. Um, so it's, it's amazing the similarities between our two experiences. Yes. Uh, and I'll again refer back to Milo. Um, so Milo, we had we had a relatively light police presence at that. We didn't expect there wasn't a lot of Internet chatter or social media chatter about the there were some protests, but we weren't concerned about potential violence. However, for the October event this past October, there was a lot of social media chatter, a lot of calls to shut down the event. And I think that was some of the you know shaming about the alternative event was, you know, we don't want alternative events, which is, again, the intent is sort of to take the air out of the concerning event and really you know, have something else. We want to shut this event down. So police and, and you know, I'm, we work in close partnership with police, of course, to plan for these events. Um, I do think they would say they overcorrected. Um, someone like Roddick was mentioning, there was a, a large police presence. Uh, we had state police in, they were on horses. Um, I walked out the, the building where the speech was happening, or the event was happening is just two buildings down from me. And I walked out, you know, right after work and it felt like a police state. Um, there were police. And so I actually, I actually believe that contributed to um, a feeling by those there, sort of what Radhika was mentioning, the students felt that we were protecting the speakers, that we were looking to maybe um, get the protesters in trouble. Uh, and we're you know, trying to squelch their speech. So it created this really, it was an eerie feeling that I've never experienced on a college campus. 
Uh, and so we, we are really trying to learn from that. But I, I think that's, that's a difficult place that law enforcement is in too, because they're trying, you know, in our law enforcement, like probably many universities try to employ a community policing model, really develop relationships. They do a terrific job, you know, for the most part at doing that. And they, they're working with college students purposefully. Um, but in this case, it really created this dynamic that was difficult. And I wouldn't say that's the reason that it became violent, but it did create this atmosphere that was really tense um, for all involved. Uh, so we were learning a lot. So we, we actually modified that for the April planning where we'll still have, you know, police on standby, but the visible presence will not, is not going to be the same at the events that happened in April. We'll have people if we need to, but we will really try to use, you know, smaller police presence, administrators, students sort of engaging with, you know, folks, uh, differently than, than had happened in October. One question, and I don't know if you have any insights into this, is both of you mentioned this idea that the optics, at least from the student perspective, was that the use of law enforcement was to protect the speaker rather than to protect students and members of the campus community. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why that was the optics and if there was a way to kind of switch it around, um, if that's possible, or if this is just sort of right now inherent and what people think about what the role of law enforcement is. I think just looking at the situation, um, even though I had been part of the planning process and been part of the debriefs from the last um, incident, but I, I walked down um, from our Memorial Union to the pavilion where the event was held. And it felt like I walked into a different world, as Danny said. Um, it, there, were, there were more police officers, I think, than I've seen in my entire life in one location with like the face shields and holding the physical shields, forming a barricade. Um, and they were like patrolling around and it was frightening um, and very jarring for students. And shockingly, I, I don't think most of the students knew it was happening. Um, there's an app called Yik Yak, which a lot of the students use. It's an anonymous um, sort of Twitter where you post whatever you're feeling real time. And a lot of students were just saying, what's going on at the ARC? Like, why are there police officers around the gym? And it honestly, like not to exaggerate, but it looked like something out of the Hunger Games, if I'm being honest. Um, I, I've never truly seen that many officers. So I don't think there's any way you can get past that impression if you're going to have that large of a police presence. Um, it's, it's going to look to students like you're trying to protect whatever is going on in that building. And in that case, it was a speaker that a lot of the students found to be distasteful. Thanks, Danny. I'm, I'm guessing you have something to add and it might piggyback on what Radhika said. Yeah, no, I, I think just a similar, similar thought. Um, you know, I think that we're increasingly seeing students, and I, I don't have the answer for this, and I'd be curious about Radhika's thoughts, but seeing students really um, approach some of their relationship with the university um, in a sort of contrary way, you know, um, you know, we're, we're often, and I've never been called this in my career, but you know, the last couple of years, I'm the admin, you know, we are the admin and it's admin versus students and admin versus, and, and so it's kind of caught us off guard. Uh, somewhat I'd say um, maybe it shouldn't have, but we, so really developing those relationships with students generally. And so, so I'm talking about the admin, but also police, you know, we, we really learned, we, we had the, and I'm not saying it's a benefit, but because the October event was canceled, we engaged in, you know, lots of conversations before that event, but then a lot of conversations after that event. And so then 
our April, our planning for the April event really benefited from that so that we didn't have the same pushback or concerns among the community because we had such robust conversation, broad-based conversations, broad-based planning. So we didn't hear as much of the admin or police are out to get us. It was, you know, we understand now the First Amendment, we understand free speech and why the university has to do that. But how are you going to help you make sure this is a safe event? And how are you going to maybe think about the location differently so it's away from residence halls, so it's away from, you know, student-run spaces. Um, so, you know, what can we do differently? So the conversation did change, but I think that is a huge piece of the learning is that, you know, sure, when we become aware of an event, the conversations, but I actually think we, and some of my work in the, the fellowship and research is we need to engage in these conversations in an ongoing way, whether or not we have a controversial speaker, speaker coming, but having regular forums for student dialogue that are generalized to the university community, but also specifically targeted communities as well. Um, so I, I think that's a piece of it. And I think that helps them with challenging that the dynamic of admin or police versus students. Well, and that actually is um, a perfect segue to what I was going to ask about next, which you've started to touch on, which is, again, my experience in working with a number of different institutions across the country is that in these situations, um, some of the success depends on the level of cooperation that's able to be attained between students and administrators. And I'm wondering, based on all of the experiences each of you have had, if you're going to be speaking to your cohorts who are listening today about things to think about and ways to sort of broker that and elevate that partnership, what you might say to people, you know, especially as they look ahead into what I don't think anyone thinks it's going to be a quiet fall. Uh, do you want to go ahead, Radhika? Absolutely. Um, I think something that works really well on our campus is I, I have a very close relationship with uh, the chancellor, the provost, um, and a lot of our other uh, campus leadership. So uh, our student life, student affairs administrators, um, and pretty much every major campus administrator, academic senate, um, everyone meets regularly with me as ASDCD president. And that's not the case at even the other UCs or um, other campuses across the country. Uh, and that I found set us up very well for success because we had a regularly scheduled chancellor meeting immediately after. We meet once a month with the chancellor and the senior leadership team. And our regularly scheduled meeting happened to be after the first incident. So we were very quickly able to let the university know that the response to the first incident was not appropriate um, and did not resonate with students in the way they thought it might have been received. And we were able to get the chancellor some pushing um, to publish a video leading with more of the value type of approach we discussed earlier, where we asked the chancellor to share his personal maybe frustrations with the, the speech and then some of the legal obligations instead of their um, the statement they put out, which kind of mischaracterized the event. Um, also, as a student, I tend to hear things before campus administrators do. So I was um, at the event. I know student affairs staffers were inside the event, but I was outside and I saw the Proud Boys show up. So I was able to send a quick text to um, our, our student affairs associate vice chancellor and let them know that like, hey, Sherry, like, you know, um, I see folks coming. They look like, it looks like things are going to get violent. What can we do to 
to make sure our students remain safe. So that kind of proactive communication I found really helped. And also um, having regular forums and a regular connection with your student leaders to allow them to know that, hey, you've messed up. Let us help you fix this. I think that's really important as well. Thanks. And before Danny jumps in, I'm so glad you gave a shout out to Sherry Atkinson. She's terrific. And um, the video was really great. And the town hall that I was able to be part of, it can tell was really, you know, thoughtful and intentional in the way it was thinking about uh, these issues. So, you know, let's go Aggies, right? Absolutely. We love Sherry. Yeah. And I would agree. You know, I think those regular forums with students, student leaders, not just those who we feel may be impacted most by the, you know, speech or who the target of the speech is, but really students across the board. I would also, though, I know you're asking about students, but I would also um, say partnerships with the academic colleges, with our deans, uh, because we have a lot of faculty who had a lot of interest and criticism and we're talking with students. And so really engaging the entire community in that dialogue, I think, is so helpful. One piece I would mention, you know, um, the event in October was partially funded by our student fee. And there's a there's a board, a student run board that manages that student fee. But as part of the university, of course, they have to remain content and viewpoint neutral. But they came under a lot of fire uh, by students because they awarded funds to you know Uncentred America to host that. So one of the lessons learned too is we were very vocal this semester in the upcoming with the April event uh, to communicate on behalf of the board that they needed to. <laughs> be viewpoint and content neutral, that they couldn't make funding decisions. And so they appreciated that. I think they they felt really under fire because they had made some decisions, you know, that they, they had to in the fall. Uh, but that was a learning too. So partnering with them and partnering with our student leadership, we we have a similar relationship with our student leaders. We, we have four different student governments sort of at uh, Penn State and really engaging them uh, proactively and continuously in the planning for these events and in their communication strategies and in hearing their concerns and what they're hearing from their constituencies was so important in our, our planning efforts. Thank you for reminding me about the constituents outside of students and administrators. And I'm guessing that your fellows project, which people will be able to learn from um, later this summer, is probably going to um, include all of those um, different groups. I guess one of the other things I just want to ask about, and I know it's kind of going back a little, is just sort of this town-gown relationship off campus, on campus, because I think sometimes people forget when they look in from the outside and they're like making these arguments about how, you know, the sky is falling on public school campuses. And part of what isn't always discussed um, or focused on is the role of people who are not part of the campus community. And that seems like something that's very challenging. Um, and I, it sounds like it happened in both of the situations at your various schools. And I don't know if you have any thoughts or sort of lessons learned um, from that. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll start. Uh, yes, definitely. You know, we, like many probably, you know, college campuses, we exist in a college town. Uh, and so we do have a large impact on the community around us. So we did, and we were, were fortunate to benefit from a really terrific relationship with our local police, our local, um, it's a borough of state college or local borough government. Uh, and so when we became aware of these events, we did partner pretty quickly with them because one, we request the assistance of local police in managing large events, whether it be football games or, you know, controversial events like this. Um, and then two, knowing the impact we have, and many of our faculty, staff live in the community, um, you know, have 
opinion. So our borough of State College actually put out you know, an opinion um, in support of the university's decision to allow the event to occur. Um, but even the local school board, you know, <laughs> discussed this. So it's it's really important, uh, I think, to have that dialogue with them, recognizing the larger impact. And even, you know, uh, one of the uh, visual pieces that most people identify, if, they, if they're aware of the event that happened in October, one of the things that made national news was a person spitting on Gavin McInnes, or not Gavin McInnes, Alex Stein, and that there was an image of that, a video of it, and it made national news. And people said that was actually a, a Penn State student. It wasn't. It was a local high school student. Uh, and so there, there is larger impact. And that's, you know, one of the groups that was most vocal, they um, have student in the name, but we're actually very confident that many of the members are actually community members, not students. Um, but so I think, I think engaging this larger dialogue uh, broader than the university is incredibly important. How about you, Radhika? Did you, I mean, I know there was a group, if I'm correct, called Cops Off Campus that was interested in making sure that there were not cops on campus, which I think probably... Um, played into this elevated tensions when there was law enforcement. Absolutely. Uh, I think Davis has an interesting um, situation where there's some organizations like Cops Up Campus that whose membership is a mix of students, but also community members, faculty. Um, and, and that makes for a really interesting dynamic where, where you're getting a lot of criticism or concerns from not just students, but again, faculty and community members. But something that I find helpful, and naturally this is a bit easier because as student body president, my mandate is to represent undergraduate students. Um, I found that it was okay to prioritize concerns coming from undergraduate students or their need for safety or their need to understand how to best exercise their free speech rights or um, elevating their concerns rather than prioritizing some of the concerns or criticisms that I got from community members and faculty. Um, I think making those kinds of judgment calls in leadership positions about making sure everyone's voices are heard, but making sure your decision um, prioritizes those you're meant to represent, I think is also okay. So I'm sad that we're kind of wrapping up because I have so many more questions. I think one of the last ones I want to ask, because we've focused so much, and I think it's been very pragmatic and useful in sort of the run-up to and then the following, but what happens when you get back to day-to-day life? What kinds of things go into restoring the word I'm going to use is equilibrium. I'm not even sure if that's the right word. Um, you know, as people kind of move from this very intense situation back into their normal life? And how do you make sure that the impact doesn't continue to be felt as people go about their day-to-day business? The the message that was communicated out, I think, both by Chancellor May and a little bit by myself as well, is that the most powerful message in times like these, when a provocative speaker comes and, and shares um, arguably very hateful um, rhetoric, with the campus community, the most powerful thing is to have them speak to an empty room um, and not give in to their outrage um, and not allow them to monetize it um, by recording protesters and um, any of those altercations between the speaker and our students. So um, I think as long as that, that messaging is prioritized during the incident, it's pretty easy to move on by just continuing with your regular programming and working hard throughout the year to build that kind of resilient campus community, like Danny said, that's able to respond very quickly when things like this happen. So they feel that you're a a body they can trust to reach out to when things do get tough um, and to help them bounce back right after. 
yeah, I'd, I'd just reiterate all those things that Radhika said. Um, I think the meetings, the conversations, the communication, uh, working closely with also our DEI partners, the, the offices that work closely with DEI, you know, or support DEI efforts. Um, you know, because oftentimes they have their ear to the ground more than maybe others with, you know, the needs and, and uh, you know, impact to different communities. And so making sure that we're really engaging all of our resources across campus and supporting our community, uh, but then really just continuing that dialogue. I have to say both Davis and Penn State are very lucky to have the two of you in leadership roles. And, you know, we're kind of coming to the end. And I guess I just want to give both of you an opportunity to share anything else that comes to mind. It doesn't necessarily need to be about provocative speakers and events on campus. It could also just be about sort of more of the mission of the center and what people might do um, to engage in civic engagement and engage in speech and raise their own voices or help to raise the voices of others. I'm going to sort of open it uh, to both of you before um, I thank you. One, one thing I would say that I wanted to mention, you know, I mentioned at the very beginning that uh, most of the campus statements that we put out were maybe from our, our vice president for student affairs or general counsel um, and our vice uh, provost for educational equity. What was interesting about that is some of the critics of the statements put then the message on those folks rather than the university. They were just like, well, you, maybe you're not speaking for the university. So one lesson learned for us was that we needed our president to be very visible and, and vocal. And so the people, when, when she speaks, she is speaking clearly then on behalf of the university. And so it couldn't be Danny Shehe said, it's the university is saying. And so she did it in anticipation of the April event. She did put out uh, a, a video that I thought was terrific on the value of free speech, on controversial speaking, um, and why we're allowing these kinds of events to happen. But that also then created sort of a tone across campus where people understood, okay, this, even if I disagree with it, this is the university speaking. It's not, I can't just put it on this administrator who may or may not be speaking on behalf of the university. Probably the two takeaways are talk often to your student leaders and lead with your values. I am incredibly grateful to both of you for being so generous with your time, but also for being so candid and direct and open about your experiences. I think one of the values that I really try to promote at the center is um, sharing resources. And I think the best way that we can do that is to share what went, went well and what didn't went go well, because obviously if the two of you on different sides of the country had very similar experiences, I have to believe that there are many people who are going to resonate with the things that you're saying. And so I'm grateful to you. So again, thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. And thank you again to Radhika and Danny for sharing their thoughts and guidance. This month, the Center announced the selection of our sixth class of fellows. We're honored to have 10 new scholars, staff, and graduate students joining our community and working on research focused on higher education's role in preparing scientifically literate voters, diversity professionals' views on political bans, and marginalized students' experiences with bias and hateful speech, among other topics. To view more about our new fellows and their projects, you can visit our website, freespeechcenter.universityofcalifornia.edu. And as always, please subscribe to our mailing list to keep up with our work. Talk to you next month.